standard issue for all women. Hello there, Mickey here, welcoming you to this week's Sunday Chops. Grab a brew and come on in. The water's, oh, I'm not going to say lovely, given what we're about to talk about, but important? The water's important. This week, I'm chatting with the excellent Susie Madigan, who has the vital role of Senior Humanitarian Advisor on Gender and Protection at Care International. Clearly, what's happening in Ukraine right now is horrific for everyone there. But women and girls are particularly at risk during conflicts, whether they're fleeing the war zone or staying put in Ukraine. I mean, I'm sure you, like me, have read the heartbreaking, fury-making reports on trafficking, for one. And Hannah and I have talked about trafficking and other things that are affecting women in Ukraine at the moment on the podcast. Susie has a wealth of experience in humanitarian work with a focus on helping women and girls, experience that spans 20 years. And so I was very pleased that she explained to me the specific risks for women and girls during conflict. In our chat, we focus mostly on Ukraine, but we do also talk about Yemen, Afghanistan, the Democratic Republic of Congo and other areas of the world and what needs to change and how we can help that change in order to make life livable for millions and millions of people. Before I hand you over to Susie, I just want to add, it can feel a bit overwhelming knowing which charity to give some cash to in times of crises, and particularly when cash is hard to come by for a lot of people in the UK too. And when so many people are in need and there are so many charities clamouring for money. Care International has a focus on women and girls and does incredible work across the globe. So, you know, it's always in my rotation. Also, I think it's great that when there is an immediate emergency, like there is now in Ukraine, CARE gives two options when it comes to your donation. Cash that will be solely used in Ukraine, or cash that can be used by CARE across the other, sadly, way too many emergencies affecting millions of people all over the world. Thanks for listening. I think what Susie has to say is really important, and she says it really engagingly, given the horrors of what we're talking about. Hello, I'm joined on the Zoom by Susie Madigan, Senior Humanitarian Advisor on Gender and Protection at Care International. Susie, hello. Hello, good to be here. Thanks, Mickey. Oh, thanks so much for joining me. Now, clearly the situation in Ukraine is horrific and terrifying for everyone involved. But as the need for your role demonstrates, women and girls can be particularly at risk during war, during displacement and as refugees once they've managed to flee a war zone. What are you hearing about what's happening on the ground in Ukraine right now? Well, I mean, obviously the situation is absolutely horrendous, both within Ukraine and also, you know, as people are trying to flee. Mm. So the thing, you know, the thing about conflicts and all emergencies is it affects women and men, boys and girls, people with disabilities, you know, people with different vulnerabilities in very different ways, right? So for the men who have been obliged to stay in Ukraine and have been conscripted, obviously, you know, they're at immediate danger, you know, through being caught up in active conflict. But so too for all of the people who can't, for whatever reason, leave Ukraine, mm-hmm. you know, and of course that incorporates very many women, women and girls. 
So we are extremely concerned about a number of things within Ukraine itself. I mean, obviously, there is the immediate danger to anyone from, you know, active hostilities, from airstrikes and so on. You know, and as as the conflict seems to be escalating in the east, you know, we're, we're very concerned about danger to civilians and danger to civilian infrastructure as well. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, absolutely, number one, you know, we, we would call urgently for a cessation of, of hostilities. But, you know, also, unfortunately, within all emergencies, including and especially conflict, different forms of gender-based violence can affect women and girls in particular. You know, we are extremely concerned about reports of, of rape and sexual violence, and we would call on all parties to remember and respect international humanitarian law and international human rights law. There is a variety of different forms of gender-based violence because because even, you know, domestic violence also increases mm-hmm. dramatically. Yeah. Um, and we can talk a little bit more about that and the reasons the reasons why. We will absolutely talk about the things that you've highlighted there. But let's start with the women and the women with children who are fleeing the conflict or trying to flee the conflict. What dangers are they facing? Numerous. Women and women and girls is a kind of a very large term for, you know, a group of individuals with specific needs. And we're certainly, you know, very worried about the amount of women who are pregnant, for example, and trying to flee. So, for example, at the start of the crisis, there were around 265,000 pregnant women in Ukraine. Wow some 80,000 of whom are expected to deliver over the coming three months. So, you know, and also, you know, there are 2 million children under five, you know, and for pregnant women, breastfeeding women, I mean, just imagine how horrendous that is if you need prenatal care, postnatal care, and you're trying to either survive under active conflict with missiles landing all around or you're trying to flee and so you're on the move and you have absolutely no idea where you're going. So those services for pregnant women are really, really important. The problem also is it's it's not just a problem if you're on the move and you don't know, you know, you're taken away from wherever you were receiving that healthcare previously. You've got no idea where to find and source it now. But if you're in Ukraine, one of the problems on top of everything else is the lack of medical services, the lack of access to medical services. You know, and we are extremely concerned about the WH reports about medical facilities being damaged. And of course, you know, staff may not be able to be there um, to get to hospitals and medical facilities, or they've had to flee themselves. It's difficult to get medicines into those places. So, you know, it's a very difficult time to be pregnant under a situation of conflict. We're also very concerned for women and girls, both within Ukraine and fleeing because of the trafficking risk. Yeah, yeah. I've seen a lot of reports around this about women and girls being picked up at borders specifically for trafficking. I talked about it on the podcast a few weeks ago. It's so chaotic there, though, right, at the borders. So what what is put in place and what can be put in place to prevent this? Yeah, I mean, it, it is. I mean, what we need to balance is the need for a quick response. And obviously, it, it well, not obviously, but it is overwhelming mm. for many of, you know, the authorities and, and people trying to respond on those borders Absolutely. because the numbers 
are just so huge and it's all happened so quickly. And there is a need to balance getting people into shelters, into accommodation, transiting through quickly. But at the same time, we also need to make sure that the absolute bare minimum of checks are put in place for anybody who they are going to stay with, but also that data is collected properly disaggregated data is collected, uh, registered of people who are coming through. It's not enough to just count numbers. We have to know how many women, how many men, of what age, what disabilities do people have, what special needs do people have. Because with that information, that means that we can design an appropriate humanitarian response for the different people, also not just immediately, but, but you know, as this progresses as well. Yeah, because, I mean, this isn't a situation that's going to be going away anytime soon, sadly. So there is, I guess, an opportunity to get better at responding as things progress, right? Yeah, I mean, there always is. And definitely there there is always a need for us to improve, you know, humanitarian responses as quickly as possible. But there are also some, you know, basic principles of humanitarian response and protection principles that we should put in from the very beginning. At Care International, we focus very much on on women and girls and, and those protection needs and of other different vulnerable groups. But one really basic thing that is is not necessarily happening in humanitarian and development responses as well as it should is that real nuanced gendered understanding of how an emergency impacts women girls men boys people from the lgbtq community people with disabilities people from different ethnicities you know whatever it might be the differentiating factor particularly when it makes people more vulnerable we need to be analysing that really early on so we design our responses appropriate to those different groups and we ask them what are the specific risks you are facing and how how does that differ to others and what are the specific needs that, that you have. And that's why it's also really important to ask different groups. I think historically, you know, we've gone into situations, we find the community leaders who are generally male or just talk to a few authorities who might generally be male because, you know, we're looking at gender inequality in all societies. And we ask them all of the questions. Now, they're not going to answer all of the questions in the way that other people and other groups, they're not necessarily always going to be able to reflect their experiences, particularly those of women and girls, yeah. I mean, you hit the nail on the head earlier when you said about disaggregated data and how important that is, and it is maddening to me that this still gets left, doesn't get done. It can help solve so many problems going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Often people can be surprised by evidence and data coming out of a situation because they're looking at kind of broad brushstroke information or kind of headlines about a situation. They might not see that nuanced detail. So in Ukraine, for example, 54% of the population is female. It just happens to be like that and 46% are male. 
also a very sad piece of data that we so we put together what's what's called a rapid gender analysis and we've worked on one of those recently care produced one right at the beginning and then we've worked with the UN um, on on a second updated one and people can find that online on the on the crisis but you know we know from UN reports we were going through through data back from even 2021 that sadly even prior to this crisis one in five Ukrainian women reported experiencing domestic violence, gender-based violence. Mm. So, you know, it's these kind of facts that you need to know in order to then think, okay, so how do we respond to that? We need to make sure that people have GBV response services in place to protect them and also kind of working on responses if people want to go down later on those kind of judicial responses to actually you know get protection from the law as well let's stay with that subject because you mentioned earlier about domestic violence and it's it's no surprise that domestic violence increases in times of stress we've just seen it in the pandemic across various nations could you tell us a little bit more about what's happening in ukraine right now and what you know about that Ukraine had been experiencing a conflict for seven years prior to the major escalation in hostilities. In Ukraine, as in many of the contexts we work in, and indeed (laughs) globally, there is gender inequality within society. and that doesn't just manifest itself as not so many you know women being in parliament or having political engagement and political participation but it's something within you know if you look at kind of the you know labor rates within Ukraine about the you know the number of women who have access to independent livelihoods and so on when you look at um, women's rights organizations of which there are some fantastic organizations in Ukraine and in those bordering countries doing some brilliant work Mm -hmm. but you know looking at their statistics you know they have helplines for survivors of domestic abuse and they were saying that you know within that conflict and then particularly you know particularly in the conflict areas in the east during that time that certainly rates of domestic violence were going up uh, up in the home and you know as you were saying Mickey it's it is I guess well maybe it's not surprising for you I think sometimes it can be surprising more widely that domestic violence can go up under you know stressful situations but if we think of course Ukraine was also under experiencing the pandemic right (laughs) immune to that but also with Ukrainians also being involved in conflict and just the amount of weapons and the stress that men were feeling. You know, if you're obliged to to be fighting, you know, conflict always can brutalise a society to an extent and cause extreme emotional distress for everybody involved in it, whether you're a civilian or whether you're actively fighting. And so when that is then embedded in a community and people come home, that level of emotional stress can then unfortunately play out within the home as well. It's so hard. There's so much stuff that happens in conflict that is horrifically inevitable. And there's only so much that we can plan for with responses, particularly when we're outside of that country and and trying to help. So we've talked about the women and children who have fled and who are trying to flee and the risks they face. We've talked about 
the women who are staying in Ukraine and sort of the gender-based violence that they may be facing. And obviously some of the women have stayed and they're fighting, which is sort of new, I guess, in some ways when it comes to this situation. And you touched on it earlier on that sexual violence within war is one of those horrific inevitabilities, it seems. I've read a lot of reports coming through from Ukrainian journalists of rape by Russian soldiers. Now, I don't really expect you to have an answer for this. I just think it's part of wars that gets dismissed or forgotten and it shouldn't be. And obviously, we're not able to confirm or deny war crimes in Ukraine. But can you tell us a little bit more about sexual violence in conflict situations and the follow-up stuff that is difficult for, for women, because as you've mentioned, medical care isn't necessarily there. Sure. Although one thing I'd, I'd just say, if I may, so I would not say that it is an inevitability. I might be an idealist, but I do not think sexual violence or gender-based violence is an inevitability. How I would describe it is a risk. It is a protection risk, whether we're in conflict or outside of conflict. And I think there are things that we can do, we can do within society to mitigate and ultimately prevent that risk. But that is a real social change. And it starts with the root and the root is about creating gender equality. That is a much, much better, healthier way of looking at it. Thank you. Apologies for my cynicism. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) that I am not surprised it happens doesn't mean it's an inevitability. You're absolutely right. (laughs) No, I mean, you know, there's work that we can do in Care International and, and many other NGOs like ours. We're working on, you know, programs that we refer to as engaging men and boys. And that is really about trying to work on that social change. And I refer to that as part one of its objectives is about the prevention of gender-based violence, right? And also within gender-based violence, I also want to clarify that it's not just women and girls who experience Absolutely. you know sexual violence and particularly in conflict and of course boys can be you know as children can be extremely vulnerable and you know can be a vulnerable whether in conflict or outside conflict but you know kind of work to engage men and boys alongside women and girls about having those open discussions about gender equality because it's about power dynamics and sexual violence is about power that's ultimately what it's about you know for people thinking that it's a sexual gratification thing or something like that it's about domination and power and that comes about when people have attitudes to women and girls that they are somehow inferior it's also more complicated of course in you know sexual violence in conflict is layered and certainly you know as we've said I can't confirm or deny specific incidents or you know allegations of war crimes in terms of sexual violence in Ukraine but talking about it more more broadly when sexual violence is used as a weapon of war it can be often to subjugate the enemy to humiliate the enemy both in terms of not just the women but also the men you know, let's think about what's going on behind that. Why is it a humiliation of a community for women in conflicts to be attacked? You know, this is about the role of women and the, and how they are seen. They're still being seen as male property. Yes. I mean, yeah, to a large extent. I think there's also another layer of kind of the role of women as 
mothers and you know some women as mothers and parents of the future generation of whoever your enemy might be so it's it, it is layered but you know it's also a terror tactic it can it can be a terror tactic I mean, of course, yes, it can be a, an opportunistic crime as well. But within the context of conflict, rape and sexual violence, if that occurs, uh, we must remember that is a violation of international humanitarian law. Absolutely. Thank you. You were so articulate about a subject that I find makes me so angry I can't speak sometimes. So <laughs> well done. <laughs> No, not at all. You actually, you wanted me to mention something about also, you know, the difficulties for survivors in terms of follow-up. Response to sexual violence, whether someone, a survivor is in the middle of conflict or whether they are in the UK is woefully inadequate. Um, And, you know, we've heard a lot in the news recently about calls for changes to UK processes to to try and reduce the burden on, on survivors. But if we take rape, you know, as a specific incident, it is a medical emergency. um, So not just in terms of psychological health, of course, but, you know, physical health and women and girls. And if it were to happen, men and boys. But, you know, there is a specific time frame for women and girls, which is 72 hours in order for them. We would need to get them to medical, you know, offer them medical support um, and not least you know to offer them potential emergency contraception but also prophylactics against sexually transmitted diseases so you know when you cannot access that healthcare, that is just exacerbating an already horrendous event and the other thing is uh, there's a limited number of people who are well trained in how to respond to a survivor because it's is such a complex emotional experience for someone to go through and 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 sadly will you know be with them for a very very long time and that initial response that they get is really really important yeah. psychologically yeah. and of course to keep you know to maintain confidentiality um to maintain their privacy not least because in many situations, you know, the risk of stigmatization, and I'm afraid this, you know, that was occurring in some communities already within Ukraine prior to this escalation of conflict, but it can be really difficult for women to be known as somebody who is a victim or survivor, and they are not always given the support and solidarity that, that they, they deserve. And they're also not always given the kind of legal responses either. You know, people can make complaints, you know, in whichever country, and then it's not taken seriously, it's not followed up, and it can put them in even further risk. And certainly in other countries that we work in, trying to seek support for gender-based violence and not even sexual violence, but domestic violence can actually put women at further risk of violence and some and in some cases even death um, you know because there is a risk from perpetrators and even perpetrators families this isn't a situation and all of the things within this that are horror stories aren't situations that are going anywhere fast so what are the longer term effects for women and girls within a conflict situation like this yeah I mean I think whenever I think about 
what we call rapid onset emergencies. What slightly concerns me is it reminds me of when, like on a very kind of on a micro personal level, and, and maybe kind of listeners will be able to um, kind of relate to this. When somebody loses somebody, say in their family, when someone passes away, at the beginning they can have a kind of a huge outpouring of kind of support and love around them and you know there's a bit of a kind of a drama to it and Mm -hmm. people kind of get involved to kind of rally around and help and that is what can happen at the beginning of emergencies as well and there's a lot of attention there's a lot of attention on media attention on Ukraine at the moment but the worry is that this will be a protracted crisis and at that point people move on to other crises their attention moves on potentially funding and support can move on i mean the ngos and the charities and all the amazing volunteers there is a kind of a system in place but we really do need to think through now carefully what are the protections we need to put in place for for refugees and for people within ukraine to keep them safe you know for however long it is Now, for people um, fleeing Ukraine, you know, we've talked about kind of the need for protection measures to be put in place to understand exactly where people are going and to give people informed choice. Right. I mean, this and this is notwithstanding that, you know, the incredible outpouring of support we've seen from ordinary people from Poland to Romania to Moldova and so on. But the fact remains that whenever somebody is suddenly made reliant on others, for their basic needs, they are at risk. And unfortunately, these emergencies do attract people who will take advantage of that. And we know that there are trafficking networks that are already established in those places. So one of the key things here is not only to give people who are fleeing a choice about where they're going, information about, you know, what are their rights, what are their options, giving them options of different places to stay, putting them in touch with social workers, other protection actors, but also it's things like emergency cash. So when right at the beginning, they'll be given, you know, emergency needs, you know, hygiene kits and food and blankets and so on, and they should be given sex separated shelter. But also cash is really important for people to be able to to choose what they do next. And then after that, it's about thinking about livelihoods and possibly reskilling people um, and making sure they have the right, the adequate legal papers so that they're not taken advantage of in the countries that, you know, governments should be helping them to resettle in, including the UK. Totally. And, and the idea of, of livelihood I mean, the word itself, right? It's so integral to our lives. I saw a young journalist, a young female journalist who had fled Ukraine. And she was like, yesterday, I was a journalist. Today, I'm a refugee. And I I don't know what to do with that. And if we think about how much what we do in our daily lives is integral to our identity, then of course, people need that so that they can bend their heads, even start to bend their heads around what they've just been through and feel like they are fully human again. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember I was so I was on BBC Women's Hour about a week after the initial the news of what had happened, and you know it was just absolutely bizarre to be thinking about a nation who you know on one day were waking up, going going to work, getting on with their norm, you know ordinary lives, and then suddenly the next millions of people are running for their lives. 
it's good to remember that as we think about this, I mean, you know, it's 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 great that so many people have have taken a really keen interest in what's happening in in Ukraine, but you know, we can't forget that this is actually something that is happening in so many other locations. At the moment, there are 84 million people currently living as refugees, you know, from from you know a whole range of conflicts. And in fact, at the beginning of this year we estimated that there were 274 million people predicted to be dependent for life on humanitarian aid. So, I mean, you know, I can reel off some of the, you know, just thinking about some of the, you know, the the emergencies going on. Democratic Republic of Congo, that's 27 million people in need of humanitarian aid. That's up 40% from last year. In Afghanistan, which of course, you know, had major focus last year, but has now gone out of the news, 24 and a half million people, that's over half the population urgently in need of humanitarian assistance. Yemen, over 24 million people in need right now, including 4 million people who are displaced within Yemen. And and just to use Yemen as an example, because, you know, there, there is another knock-on effect of of the Ukraine crisis on other emergencies around the world. We've heard in the news the horrendous impact that there's going to be on agriculture and the export of cereals, you know, and including wheat um, from, from Russia and Ukraine this year. Well, Yemen imports 40% of its cereals from Ukraine and Russia. Mm. So it was already facing extreme you know food insecurity and that is only going to get worse the world food program takes cereals from ukraine and russia you know when you know we need to now suddenly find replacements for this kind of food and you you know that is not something I'm, i mean I'm, I'm not an agricultural agricultural expert or a farmer but you know i know that you don't suddenly replace that level yeah i don't think you need to be to do that kind of maths to be honest <laughs> Exactly. So, you know, and then if we're thinking about kind of women and girls, there is a kind of a correlation here that in situations of food insecurity and extreme emergencies like those in Yemen and Afghanistan, unfortunately, in those contexts, and again, this comes back to, you know, some, you know, issues related with gender inequality and the role and perception of women and girls in in different societies. But early marriage is the real problem in in those contexts, as, as it was in Syria as well. And if desperate families are unable to provide uh-huh. for all of the children in their house, then sometimes those families feel obliged also even feeling that they're obliged for the protection of that child to have that child marry early and be within another household so children can then find themselves married to men who are much older than than them you know which is obviously a a, a form of gender-based violence so just to make that link between you know things that happen in one part of the world and how women and girls can be seriously affected in a very different part of the world. So with everything that you have brought to light in this interview, it's taken a lot of willpower for me to not just go, how can we help? How can we help? With everything that you said. But now I am going to ask you, how can we help? How can listeners help? How can I help? What can we do? (laughs) 
I think there were a few things. Um, I mean, obviously, there are the, you know, on a personal level, one of the best things that people can do, to be honest, is to give cash <laughs> to check where they're sending it, make mm. sure it is a trusted NGO, it's a trusted charity, and make sure that they are sending it through those verified channels on those charities, official websites, and so on. And the reason I say cash and why not send stuff because a lot of stuff was being sent is that if you put your put yourself in in that position at that point you are desperate and you are reliant on other people but what you actually need at that point is to buy phone credit you need to buy medicine you need to buy nappies for the children etc but you know what you're actually being offered is a very kindly donated but ill-fitting shoe I think you'd probably want to have the cash and also similarly it's services right and to get these protection services in in place to get psychologists trained psychologists there there are huge psychosocial support needs mental mm-hmm. health needs um, you know we need staff trained trusted staff in all of the bordering, bordering countries and to be sent to Ukraine to put those protection services in in place but also this isn't you know as I said this isn't just about Ukraine you know we're really concerned that certain governments are actually diverting um, funding from other humanitarian situations where other people who are equally in distress, equally in a horrendous, risky situations, there, it makes no sense. And certainly from an equality of, of people, of all people, it makes no sense for money to be diverted away from other people. What we need is is a balance of how we look after everybody who needs support across the globe in different emergencies. You know, if we think about the UK government specifically... Oh, I don't want to. If we if we think about you know the the funding you know UK aid does some incredible work across the globe, but in 2020 and in 2021 there were huge cuts mm-hmm. made. The Department for International Development was merged with the Foreign Office. It's now the called the Foreign and Commonwealth Development Office. The amount of funding that was cut to what's referred to as overseas development assistance has had a massive impact on women and girls programming for women and girls and gender responsive programming. So Care International actually did an analysis of this this year about how the cuts in UK overseas development assistance funding in the last two years had affected programming, protection programming and so on, gender responsive programming for women and girls. Um, and we presented it a few weeks ago at a parliamentary event, which was great. We got some really good cross-party support from Sarah Champion, from Liz Sarg, Amanda Milling, Anthony Mangnell, Preet Gill, Ruth Davison was there as well. What we were realising is that actually to the amount of funding that is needed to bring that level back to what it was pre those cuts in 2020 and 21 is £1.9 pounds in funding is what is needed that was the level of cuts to women and girls funding overseas and that is having a serious effect on programming in response to gender-based violence programming to prevent early marriage 
programming on sexual health and reproductive needs. It's everything you talked about earlier about how that shift needs to happen. And education is one of the key ways that that societal shift can happen and therefore have a positive effect on helping to stop gender-based violence and gender-based sexual violence. Exactly, exactly. So that that's longer term. We need to write to our MPs. I mean, I think I say this on every interview I do that makes me angry, but we need to write to our MPs and bombard them. We're trying to get that funding up. Is that something that would be useful? Exactly, absolutely. Find out who your local MP is and talk to them about the, you know, the impact that the cuts to UK aid and our commitment to 0.7% of our GDP it's really important for that to be reinstated, particularly this, you know, now this 1.9 billion of, of funding to women and girls. And I know it's, I know things are hard and things are hard in the UK, cost of living is going up. But, you know, that is the beauty of the 0.7% GDP commitment. It goes up and down according to our economy. Mm-hmm to cut it to 0.5% when we've been legally committed to you know respect that 0.7% and we were you know we were leading the world in that it's really important that that's restored so two things from a personal point of view if you want to donate donate cash to those trusted NGOs and then you know from a from a donor point of view yeah try and persuade your local MP to put the pressure on to get that funding reinstated to women and girls Yep. I mean, you don't have to say this. I know that you are tied to various things, but I can tell you what, listeners, I don't think that 0.2% is going to the people in the UK who need it either. So, yeah, let's uh, let's bully our MPs in the best possible way. <laughs> Susie, I mean, there are so many areas to cover that I could talk to you all day about this. Thank you so, so much for all the incredible work you do. Chuck us Care International's website, please. Where can people give via Care International? Oh, great. It's www.careinternational.org. So if you're particularly moved by the Ukraine crisis, you can donate directly there. Or if you were moved by what I was saying about all of the other emergencies from Syria to uh, Democratic Republic of Congo to Afghanistan to Ethiopia, you can donate there to support all of the, the work we're doing. And we're in 104 countries of which, sadly, many are emergencies. Susie, thank you so much for your time. Bless you. Thanks so much, Mickey. Thanks for having me. Standard Issue for all women.